0: Hey, and welcome to The Living Stone, a digital ministry from Greystone Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Here's this week's scripture reading and sermon.
1: I'm reading from Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely Just then, in front of him, there was a man who had dropsy, and Jesus asked the lawyers and Pharisees, is it lawful to cure people on the Sabbath or not? And they were silent. So Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. Then he said to them, if one of you has a child or an ox that has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull it out on a Sabbath day? and they could not reply to this. When he noticed how the guests chose their places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited you both, who invited both of you may come to say to you, Give this person your place, and then in disgrace you will start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go sit down in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He said also to the one who had invited him When you give a lunch or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your neighbors in case they may invite you in return, and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The word of God for the people of God. God.
0: I heard a story once about a young man who was hoping to walk on to Baylor's baseball team. He wanted it so badly that he hired himself a hitting coach to help him with a swing. He met with the coach for several sessions, trying his best to remain patient as he waited for results. He tried to trust that the coach knew what he was doing, and he tried really hard not to question his methods. But after a while, the player got super frustrated with the coach Because the pace of the training wasn't, you know, moving along as he thought it should, he got so frustrated that he was ready to quit. In one heated moment during a training session, he looked at the coach and he said, I just don't think this is going to work out because I hired you to help me with my hitting. And we've been doing this thing for weeks. And you haven't even let me pick up a bat yet. You just keep fussing over how I walk up to the plate and how I stand there. You insist on all of these leg exercises and stretches and all that secondary stuff. I hired you to help me with hitting, and you won't even let me hold a bat. The wise coach cracked a slight smile as he looked with ease at the anxious player before responding by saying, son, if you even want a chance to swing for the rafters at Baylor's Field, you are going to have to build a stronger foundation. Let me know when you're ready to get back to work. Sometimes I think we all need a little help from a loving coach who has the ability to see things differently, perhaps even more fully than we can see them ourselves. It reminds me of this little verse from 1 Corinthians 13 that reminds us now we see only in part, but then we will see in full. The reading from Luke's gospel today brings us into the home of a Pharisee where Jesus is at the table, not with his friends and disciples as we might think, but with a group of, well, Pharisees, the friends of, of the homeowner, and just as they are reclining for the beginning of the Sabbath meal, a man with dropsy enters the scene. Now, because we have read the Gospels before, and we know that Jesus does like to heal people regardless of the day of the week, and because we know that Jesus can sometimes get a little heated with the Pharisees over issues of law and piety, we might be inclined to presume we think we know where this is going. But this story is different. And so if you would, let's all take those assumptions and set them aside for the next, I don't know, 10 minutes or so as we process this unique story from Luke's gospel. Let's imagine just for 10 minutes, Jesus as a loving coach making observations, and then offering some humble suggestions to the people he is sharing a meal with. So here we are in the home of a Pharisee, full of other Pharisees, presumably the guy's friends, gathering at the table for the Sabbath meal when a man with dropsy enters the scene. There are at least two ways to explain what dropsy is. It is not a term that we use nowadays, but there are two explanations for for that word in the ancient world. One is a medical condition, something that we would know as edema or swelling But it was also used as kind of a colloquial way to talk about somebody who was greedy. So here we go with the layered text. So either the man with dropsy is physically ill or he is spiritually ill. We can't really be sure. But again, to address our assumptions or what we think might happen... Dropsy is not something that would render a person to be ritually impure. So this isn't about a purity code. His presence at the table would not render the others who have gathered there to be impure either. It seems the problem with his presence is that he needs to be healed, either physically or spiritually, or maybe even both. And the problem with that is well, it's Sabbath. So Jesus looks at his dinner companions and asks the question, well, what do you think? Is it lawful to heal this guy or not? And the Pharisees went silent. So Jesus pushes a little more by offering an anecdote that many of them would have already known from rabbinical conversations. The rabbis teach or taught that if an ox were to fall into a well on the Sabbath, you should not pull it out, but wait until the following day in order to keep the commandment, to keep the Sabbath holy. But Jesus changed it a little bit. He upped the ante. He says of you has a child or an ox, a child or an ox, who falls into a well on the Sabbath, would you not immediately pull it up? When he invokes the riddle in such a way, the crowd is forced to deal with a bigger, more complex question. Is the man who needs healing today more like an animal or a child like a good baseball coach who sees the stance as a critical foundation to the swing and ultimately the ability to hit the ball. Jesus sees the limitations of what his table mates are able to comprehend as he challenges them to rethink how they've been trained to see the uninvited dinner guest. Is he more like an animal Or a human being? Should we treat him more like property or like beloved kinfolk? And the Pharisees again went silent. So the text shifts a little bit at that point, and Jesus presumably backed off a little bit and let the issue rest while the dinner went on. And when the time came for the friends to gather around the table itself, Jesus watched all the other guests choose their place at the table. And remember that this table in the ancient world is not the same as the tables you and I might have in our kitchens, you know, when we have guests over and they say, where should I sit? And you say, well, it doesn't really matter. They're all the same. No, in the ancient world, one's place at the table was reflective of their place in society. The most honored guest would sit next to the host and this would always be the person with the most clout, the most power, the most wealth and authority. They would sit next to the host and everybody else would file in according to their place in society. And so Jesus watched and observed the ways that the guests chose for themselves the places of honor at the table. And then Jesus did what Jesus does so well. He spoke up and offered a parable. When you're invited by somebody to a wedding banquet, he said, don't choose for yourself a place of honor, but sit instead at the lowest place so that when the host comes, he might say to you, friend, move on up. And then Jesus continued... When you give a luncheon, don't invite those who are your equals, like your relatives and your friends or your neighbors. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, those who are not at all like you. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Of course, that's the truncated version, but you just heard the long version a minute ago. And clearly you can see what Jesus is doing here. He actually says it very, very plainly as he transitions away from the parable toward the more direct teaching and instruction. The point Jesus is trying to make is this, all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted like a wise, loving coach. Jesus sees the foundational issue here is the self-focus, the self-interest. Should we heal the man, or would that make us in violation of the law? doesn't matter if he's better. Where should we sit? Where's my place at the table? Do you see the self-focus there, even in the questions? Jesus can see it, and he can see that it's all in the wrong place. The dinner guests are so preoccupied with themselves and their place in the world that they cannot fully see a human being who has entered the room in need of healing right in front of their eyes. And what I love so much about this particular story, remember I asked you to set all that baggage aside. What I love so much about this story is that unlike so many others where Jesus is frustrated with the Pharisees, the landowners, the lawyers, the tax collectors, the people of means who never seem to get it right. Unlike those frustrating interactions between them and Jesus here, Jesus seems to have more patience, more kindness, and dare I even say, more humility than he does in others. Jesus is modeling what he is trying to teach. Sometimes I I worry. I worry that as followers of Jesus we consider humility to be kind of a lesser virtue. Like A sort of small print requirement that comes after the bigger, bolder, more important pieces of our theology. Sometimes I worry that we treat it kind of like an add-on to consider after we have worked out the rest of our salvation or our relationship with God. But if this is true, let us remember that after Jesus observes the Pharisees, presumably Pharisees that he was friends with, after all, He is there on Sabbath for the meal. If Jesus observes the Pharisees and after watching them gather, what he sees as the most important thing for their faith and their life is for them to model humility. Then don't you think it's pretty important for us to For if you do all these things, Jesus says, after instructing his friends, really, to choose a lower place for themselves at the table, after explaining to them that they don't need to invite the people who are like them to the table, but the people who are lower than them. For if you do all these things, Jesus says, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus, the good coach, sees that humility is the essential foundation upon which a life of faith and discipleship can be built. And this is most difficult, I would say, for us, because everything in our lives points in the opposite direction. We are trained from birth to be proud, and confident, and sure. The virtues of ability and achievement and success and popularity are the ones that reap the obvious rewards, right? And so if we want to be successful at being Christian which really is kind of an oxymoron, but we're trained so much that we put it on top of our Christian faith. If we want to be successful at being a Christian, we want to achieve a good relationship with God. We concern ourselves with spiritual advancement. We want to make sure we get the doctrines right. We want to follow the rules We want to befriend the pious and the godly, the ones who know all the Bible verses and who seem to apply them to their lives with such ease. Well, maybe there's a place for those things. Those are not bad things. But Jesus seems to be coaching us to start with a different kind of stance, a stance that is rooted in humility. This is a lesson that I learned over and over again from field personnel, especially from Mark and Kim Wyatt, dear friends of Greystone. If those of you have not met them, or if any of you in the room haven't met them, they're field personnel who have created the Welcome House Network, which provides housing and community for refugees and newcomers. Every time I talk with Mark and Kim, I hear new stories of humility and lessons that they have learned because they have created a wider table. During our three-week focus on global missions, we're going to see examples and hear stories and videos like the ones we watched earlier today stories about people who work in the United States and far beyond, and their stories, each and every one, remind us that we may think we have everything to offer the world, but when we draw nearer to those around the globe whom God already loves and with whom God is already present, we quickly discover how much we have to learn But we have to be humble enough to know that our experience enables us only to see a small portion of God's revelation, only a small little glimpse of God's big activity in this world. We need one another to get the big picture. And friends, we will never expand our views, our faith, or even our love if we do not start with humility. So often we learn this from field personnel or as we ourselves participate in missions, activities, or ministries of service, but I believe that this lesson offers profound wisdom for every area of our lives. Just imagine what would happen if we could remember humility in our daily work and going to the grocery store, going to the office. Imagine a world full of humble Christian people. It would be a little different, wouldn't it? You live in this world with so much pain, so much division, There are more voices and perspectives and parties and influencers out there than ever before, and each and every one wants our full allegiance and commitment. Not because it's good for us, not because it's good for our neighbors, it certainly is not, but because it is good for those who want to influence us. And I'm afraid to say that too often... Good, well-meaning Christian people like you and I, we get distracted and swayed and sucked up into all of that, most often because we are afraid, afraid of something. And they are offering us a scapegoat or a quick solution that calms our fears and makes us feel better about ourselves. Like the Pharisees who came to the table looking for assurance in their place of honor. We look to these kinds of ideologies, these lesser identities, these pathways to success and security for ourselves because they feel really good. But when we buy into those ready-made and absolute ideologies about us and them, we're really just assuming positions of pride and arrogance, believing that we can see the whole picture that we know better than everybody else, and that we have it all figured out. But when we do this, we close our minds to the possibility that God might be working through each and every interruption in our lives and in our faith, just like the man with dropsy who entered the dinner party in search of healing. We close our minds and we harden our hearts, perhaps because it's too painful to open them up again, too painful to admit that we don't have all the answers. But if that kind of approach continues to inform our stance, we will continue to be just like that young baseball player, growing frustrated with the coach. And y'all, we are never going to hit a grand slam we might not even get to pick up that bat. Because the good coach teaches us that we cannot play the games of life and faith unless we first work on our approach and stance, seeking first, foremost, and always a posture of humility. And so friends, sisters, brothers, family of faith, good, well-meaning Christian people, Go and do likewise. Amen.